Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the very first and unexpected public evening lectures of the 2016 calendar year. Um, I'm your host, Tom Fleming. Welcome. Thank you for coming out on a cold and rainy night in Tucson, Arizona. We also thank those of you who are watching this podcast on iTunes U or streaming live at www.as.arizona.edu. Couple of announcements, because of the weather, there will be no telescope observing tonight. Um, yes, also an opportunity to silence your phones. Um, I'd like to bring to your attention uh, our schedule. So thank you for getting the notice we sent out via email about tonight's lecture. We will have Dr. Theodora Carolidi speak next Monday night uh, on January the 11th. And then uh, Andrew Strominger from Harvard will be here on January the 25th. Then I decided I'm not going to compete with the College of Science lecture series. So we're taking a break uh, in February and the first two weeks of March. But after the U university spring break, we're coming back with, this is something different. We've never really done this before. Um, my colleague, Professor Daniel Apai, has this really big grant. Uh, and he started this group called Earth and Other Systems, EOS. And we're, what we're going to do is have a series of three lectures. So it's going to be a mini-series within a series. And Daniel Apai, Joan Najita, and Ilaria Pascucci are all going to give different talks about finding another Earth. So each lecture will build on the next. So that's what's coming up for this spring. Also, if you are not on our mailing list, okay, we've got a mailing list on that table back where Ruth McCutcheon is, and there's Ruth, our development officer here at Stewart Observatory. If you want to keep up to date, like, it would have been hard for you to know about this lecture if you weren't on our mailing list. So if you're not on our email list and you'd like to know about other events for the public here at Stewart Observatory, please sign up. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, there's one other event that I wanted to make you aware of. The poetry, we, we, whether you know it or not, we have one of the top poetry centers. It was founded in 1960, and when it was opened, the keynote speaker was Robert Frost, okay? Yes. And Helen Schaefer, wife of former University of Arizona President John Schaefer, was a big guiding force behind the poetry center. And, when they built the new one about eight years ago, eight, nine, oh, maybe it was 10 years ago, it, her name's on it, the Helen Schaefer Poetry Center. Well, they contacted me last spring because they wanted to do something with astronomy. So I got Flandreau Planetarium and Lunar Planetary Lab involved. We're participating in a National Endowment for the Arts grant uh, that they have for the Big Read. And this year, the Big Read is Edgar Allan Poe. And so, what I had to come up with for our event is how does Edgar Allan Poe connect to astronomy? Uh, and it's, it's it geared towards young people, okay? You were probably taught in school that Edgar Allan Poe was the forerunner of the detective novel. He was also the forerunner of science fiction, okay? And so what we're gonna do, it's gonna happen next Friday night, Friday, uh, January 11th. All these events are free. It's an open house from like five to, to eight. But what's going to happen is our telescope will be open to view the moon. 
um, we're going to have meteorites and a hot chocolate bar in the main lobby of Stewart Observatory. At 6 o'clock in the Flandreau Planetarium Theater, Professor uh, Paul Hur from our English department, who's a Poe expert, is going to read two poems by Poe. And I have developed a planetarium presentation to match the poetry. And another gentleman, Chris Black, has actually composed music. And so it's going to be a musical, astronomical poetry reading. Then at 7 o'clock, Richard Poss in here is going to give a talk about a short story that Poe wrote about a journey to the moon. So, yes? Did I say, I didn't say the 15th? Oh, the 11th is our next public lecture. The fifth, thank you. The 15th is a Friday night, and there's no basketball game that night. There is one on Thursday and Saturday. That's why we did it on Friday night, okay? And so that's the deal. So, Matt, where is that sound coming from? Okay, so anyways, I will try to figure that out while we get the lecture started. So let's get things started. It's not that, okay. So, could it be me? Do you have a cell phone on your person that's active? I don't think it's active. Yeah, let's just move it away. <laughs> Put it here with your thumb drive. Nope, that's not it. Could it be my hip replacement? Oh. <laughs> okay. So, let us begin. I've had trouble with a filling, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so we are very, very pleased tonight to have Professor, Professor Rudy Lindner from the Department of History at the University of Michigan. By the way, are there any Michigan alumni here tonight? Because we did send the notice out to the Alumni Club for Michigan as well. Now, all of you know that I'm a Cornell man, and so I, I make snide remarks about Havid, okay? I also grew up in Ohio, so I'm really biting my tongue not to say anything, and I won't, okay? Um, Professor Lidner actually got his bachelor's degree in medieval history <laughs> at, at, at Havid, all right? Then he got his master's degree in Byzantine history at the University of Wisconsin, and his PhD in history, again, medieval history, is uh, from Berkeley, University of California. Uh, he was on the faculty at Tufts University for a few years, but then has been at the University of Michigan. And one of his specialties is the history of science. He teaches a course at the University of Michigan on the history of astronomy. So without further ado, we will ask Professor Lidner to give us a talk on the rise, death, and rebirth of cosmology in the 20th century. Professor Lidner. Thank you very much, Professor Fleming. I think if there's a question on your mind other than why did this man bring Michigan weather with him to, to Tucson, um, I think you may be wondering how it is that somebody who works on uh, the Mongols uh, pretends to speak to you uh, on a subject having to do with the history, structure, and future of the universe. Uh, one thing that I may have in common with many of you is uh, that I have an abiding interest in astronomy and am an amateur astronomer and 
as, a, as a child in central California, I had the advantage of the kind of skies that you have here every night. When I arrived last night, I went outside and to look at Orion, and I hadn't realized there were that many stars in Orion. And then I saw the constellation Lepus, and I realized I hadn't seen that in 60 years, and hadn't seen Columba in 70 years, and I've been looking at real estate ads today. <laughs> but the, 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 the point is, uh, uh, I've, been a, I've been a member of the Stockton, California Astronomical Society f since 1952, so I'm the, how should I put it? I have the longest years of membership of anyone. Uh, but I also, because of my career, hold the record of the longest number of years never having attended a meeting. Um, so it is my pleasure this evening to speak to you about uh, some aspects of the history of cosmology in the first 60 years of the 20th century. Uh, some of you may know the book from which this picture is taken, perhaps, The Little House by Virginia Lee Burton. And our image of the universe around 1910 was the image of the little house, small, quiet, cozy, not a lot happening, but a good place to, uh, to be in and to enjoy life. And that model. That model of the universe goes back to a very well-known early 20th century Dutch astronomer, Jacobus Kaptein. We see him here at the Mount Wilson Observatory having a picnic with his wife. Um, the Dutch apparently are rather formal about their picnics. Uh, Kaptein, uh, because he was in the Netherlands, needless to say, uh, it was too cloudy to observe. His observatory had no telescope. And he did statistical astronomy, uh, processing reams and reams of material, uh, and found that, needless to say, this got to be expensive. And he cast around for cheap labor to help him do statistical astronomy and ultimately was able to uh, use the services of convicts from a nearby prison. And so the prisoners and Kaptein uh, devised what is since known as the Kaptein universe, a small universe, um, a kind of an elliptical, an ellipsoid of a universe, not very big, stable, static, not much to it with the sun, from a Copernican standpoint, embarrassingly close to the center. And so this was the universe in which our grandparents and great-grandparents lived. Very cozy. Then in 1915, Albert Einstein published his general theory of relativity, which included a series of what were called field equations uh, that helped him to define how gravity works in the universe. And 
Needless to say, when you are going to make predictions in physics, you might want to uh, afford some opportunities to have your predictions tested. And the consequences of this peculiar curved space-time of 1915, well, there were three things that in principle could be observed. A change in the orbit of the planet Mercury. This had already been observed. The deflection of light by the sun. So if you have a star that's right near, that is to say, in back of the sun, and as its light passed near the sun, uh, it, would be, it would appear to be coming from a slightly different direction. And you would test this, of course, at an eclipse of the sun. And third, the gravitational redshift of light, that is to say, as light leaves the sun or any other massive stellar body, um, the, the, the light would appear to be slightly reddened. So there were the, these three tests, one of which had already uh, been, been established. So it was kind of a retrograde prediction that Einstein made. All of these, by the way, involved very, very tiny quantities, therefore rather difficult to measure. And for most astronomers who are more or less interested in, in a bigger picture, the question of sort of very minor deviations, many of them, they looked at Einstein's mathematics, which was incredibly complex, and the geometry, which was hard to believe. And they said, those who knew Yiddish, Fair. But a British expedition went out to a site in South America and off Africa and was able to measure the deflection of light at a solar eclipse, one of the most famous astronomical observations ever made. The observer in Africa was Sir Arthur Eddington, one of the most famous astronomers in the world. This, this not only made Eddington, uh, it also made Einstein. Um, you know, uh, New York Times had a headline, lights all askew in the heavens. But most people need not worry. Most people. Book only 12 people in the world understand. <laughs> Someone once said in Einstein's uh, you know, presence, walked up to him, and this was a man who felt that he understood Einstein. He said, well, Professor Einstein, I congratulate you. You know, there, there are only three people in the world who, who understand your theory. And Einstein scratched his head. And the man, Ludwig Silberstein, said, uh, well, come, come now. And Einstein said, no, no, I'm just wondering who the third might be. <laughs> Not to be outdone in 1917, Einstein took his gravitational equations and applied them to the universe as a whole. Because after all, equations that are about gravitation may also be applied to the, the big kahuna of gravitation, shall we say, which is the universe. And he found that in the course of doing this, he was able to derive some equations that were interesting. But these equations had multiple solutions. And it was extremely hard to envision the non-Euclidean geometry. And it still is. 
Georges Lemaitre, who is one of the architects of the universe as we now understand it, once turned to Professor Alan Sandage at Mount Palomar Observatory, who was also a great observational cosmologist, and said, Monsieur Sandage, is it true that you do not understand, is it true that you cannot envision in your mind four-dimensional space-time? And Sandage said, you're right, I can't. Lemaitre said, what a pity. <laughs> Einstein's initial solution was known as solution A, curved space, but his equations as he, as he understood them required that the universe either had to expand or to contract. But the universe he knew was the little house. And so he put in a cosmological constant, which high school students call a fudge factor. The kind of thing where you say that one is equal to two for large values of one and small values of two. And that enabled him to conclude that in fact the universe was static. So it was both a revolutionary notion because of this peculiar way in which matter causes space to curve and the curvature of space tells us how matter moves within space. But it was also very conventional in that it was, he brought it back into this notion of a static universe. Within two months, a Dutch colleague of his, Willem de Sitter, sat down, worked through the math, and found a solution B. Solution B was very interesting. First of all, because for it to work, the universe had to be empty. People said, well, you know, we, we, the universe is not empty. And De Sitter responded, well, you know, if you average it out, there's a lot of empty space. So he said, first approximation, we'll assume that, that, that the universe is, is empty. The second thing was that if you put an observer or you tossed a, you know, if you tossed a Hershey bar into this universe, it would appear to run away from you. Good thing if you're on a diet. And it, the light that you would observe would appear to be reddened. That is to say, it would look like what astronomers call the Doppler effect of a receding object whose light uh, appears to be pushed to the red end of the spectrum. This became known as the De Sitter effect. Even though this universe was empty, many people liked it because the De Sitter effect, I'm sorry, I've, have I missed a slide here? No, it's okay. Um, that the De Sitter effect helped explain certain phenomena that I'll come back to. A few years later, a Russian astronomer, Alexander Friedman, came up with a very interesting and much more complete set of equations Einstein's equations with solutions. This universe, you could toss as many Hershey bars into it as you wanted. It was a universe that could be static, it could expand, it could contract, or it could oscillate. And the universe we live in, one of the, it, it, it is a Friedman universe in many ways. But he didn't put in too much of discussion of, look, 
this is how our universe may work. So many people considered it just a mathematical exercise. It also didn't help that Einstein wrote a little article saying, Friedman's math is wrong. Friedman wrote back a letter to Einstein saying, you know what? You have made the mathematical mistake. And Einstein was forced to write a little response in which he said, the, right, my math was wrong, I'm sorry. But in any case, this doesn't mean very much. Friedman died very young. Had he lived longer, he would have played a major role in cosmology until, of course, Stalin's purges of 1938. The reason why the de Sitter effect was interesting was because of this man, Vesto Melvin Slifer of the Lowell Observatory. I doubt if you'll meet somebody called Vesto in your life. And you probably haven't met many already. And Slifer was brought into the Lowell Observatory and set up with this very nice spectroscope that you can see today at Lowell uh, because Percival Lowell was interested in seeing whether these peculiar spiral nebulosities in the sky, what are they? Are they eddies? Are they separate island universes? Are they perhaps solar systems in the making? And he wanted Slifer to work on this. What Slifer discovered was, I don't know if they're eddies, I don't know if they're island universes, but what I do know is that they have velocities that are far above the velocities of stars. They're the largest velocities we know, and almost all of them are velocities of recession running away from us. We have cooties. And so many people ask themselves, ah, maybe solution B makes sense. Maybe what we're seeing here in Slifer's observations are proof of the de Sitter effect. Well, needless to say, if you didn't know what a spiral nebula was, you couldn't really attack this. And so it was very good when, you see here on the 6th of October, 1923, this is the plate taken at the 100-inch telescope by Edwin Hubble, and he noticed a couple of new stars, novas, and then he noticed that one of them, when he looked at other plates, was a variable star, and here is his working piece of paper, I've seen it, in which he looked at many plates and found that the particular curve of dimming and brightening was characteristic of a Cepheid variable star. Henrietta Leavitt at Harvard University had found a relationship between the period of a Cepheid and its luminosity it had been calibrated by Einar Herzsprung and Harlow Shapley. Harlow was a name you won't hear so often anymore. Uh, and, and Hubble used this to demonstrate that the Andromeda galaxy and other spirals are, as he called them, um, external nebulae, extragalactic nebulae. We will use the term galaxy. Now, all of a sudden, you had all of Slifer's results. You knew that they dealt with not little eddies, but they dealt with separate island universes. And you could, know, got it, you could now go to town. Notice, the theories were devised in Europe. 
Eddington, Einstein, De Sitter. But the observations were American. And for many years, there was a division in cosmology between the European theoreticians and the American observers. And you who live in Arizona understand, of course, the reason for this is that European, the opportunities for good, you know, for, for, for clear skies in Europe aren't as good as they are here in the Southwest or where until I arrived yesterday. Here is a plate made at the Lick Observatory in 1899 in which the astronomer noticed not only that there are stars all over, not only there's the object that he wanted to see, but here and here and here and here and here and here and here are spiral nebulosities. By 1920, there was an understanding that there were maybe a million of these. That was, of course, a grievous undercount. So they were important. And studying them might be a good way to decide between models of the universe, Friedman, solution A, solution B. How are you going to do this? Well, you, you, you draw an array and try to graph one thing against another. This is a Swedish astronomer's graph of the velocity of recession of a galaxy versus its distance. And notice that at this time, they didn't know many distances. And so what is the unit? Dis distances of the Andromeda Nebula, which they didn't really know all that well, but they did on the basis of it's so much fainter, it's so much fainter. I challenge you to find a relationship here. But people were working on it. Georges Lemaitre, a Belgian priest in 1927, is a very brilliant mathematician. He'd studied in the United States. He'd studied his mathematics in Europe. And he published in 1927 the Friedman universe all over again. He didn't know about Friedman's work because people hadn't read Friedman's work. And guess what? They didn't know about Lemaitre's work because he published it in a local Brussels, Belgian uh, journal that not many people read. But what he had produced and did not publish is this graph based on Slipher's velocities and on his own notions of distance. And well, that is a straight line. Now, whether you can gather it from all the data, it's hard to say. But, but what is now called the Hubble diagram, this is the first Hubble diagram by Lemaitre in 1927. And it's very similar to the Hubble diagram that Hubble first published. Lemaitre's universe was like the Friedman universe. It was an expanding universe. It's interesting that Lemaitre had the expansion begin not at a singularity, but that there was a, a static point earlier, a static, what he called a primeval atom, like an egg. And this egg sort of sat there for God knows how much time, pretty small, but it contained all the matter in the universe compressed together. And it would occasionally bubble around here and there. And as a result of quantum effects, ultimately, it begins to expand. So the Lemaitre universe is an expanding universe, but it does not have 
one single point of origin. Sorry. Now, the people who were very much interested in this were Edwin Hubble at Mount Wilson and his colleague Milton Humason. Humason worked with a 100-inch telescope to get the velocities. Hubble worked with the Cepheid variables and others to obtain the distances. Here is Hubble. Here is Humason. You may ask the age-old question, why are these men smiling? The answer is very simple. They are the only two people who have the equipment and the opportunity and the job assignment of doing observational cosmology. No other telescope in the world was working with this material. So it was wonderful. And after a time, they in fact produced both in 1929 and 1931 what we know as the Hubble diagram. It's interesting that Hubble kept referring to the redshifts. And he thought that this diagram would help in understanding the de Sitter effect. Hubble never publicly stated that these redshifts represent actual velocities. Deep in his heart, I suspect he believed it, but he was never quite sure. His, his training originally was as a lawyer, and he was a little bit uncertain. So it's very interesting. One problem with this is that from the diagram, you can infer a point at which all of this begins. And it turns out that the age of the universe that you come up with is about 2 billion years. The trouble is that by this time, people understood that the age of the Earth was between 3 and 4 billion years. How can you have an Earth that is older than the universe? I mean, maybe you can. But it requires a belief that we are really remarkable in, in, in the universe, that we were present, that literally we were present at the creation, so to speak. So that was one big problem of this kind of cosmology which was that you had this, this, this uh, disconnect between the age of the universe and the age of the Earth. Hubble, do the redshifts reflect the de Sitter effect? Should we speak of redshifts or actual velocities? And what about these redshifts? Hubble's colleague, Fritz Zwicky, said, maybe light loses energy as it travels immense distances. Zwicky was a strange man in many ways. He was brilliant, but strange. He referred to his colleagues as spherical bastards. Someone asked him, what do you mean they're spherical bastards? He said, any way you look at them. He's still a bastard. Does light lose energy? Well, you know, OK. Does light need geritol? If you, if you are of a certain age. Um, it was an interesting idea. Of course, it, it had no legs. 1930, there's a meeting of the Royal Astronomical Society in which there's a discussion about the problems. Eddington was there. De Sitter was there. The results of this conversation were published. And Lemaitre wrote to Eddington and said, three years ago, I sent you my article. Here's another copy. You don't need to worry about this anymore. My theory responds to this and is a model of an expanding universe. 
Eddington read it, was trans, just transformed, immediately had it published in English, and the theory of the expanding universe, the idea, the phrase the expanding universe became a common one in astronomers' vocabulary. Here is Eddington on the left talking about it with Lemaitre on the right. Here is one of Lemaitre's manuscripts in which he talks a little bit about the primeval atom. And notice, notice the paragraph that he chose not to publish. I think that everyone who believed in a supreme being supporting every being and every acting believes also that God is essentially hidden and may be glad to see how present physics provides a veil hiding the creation. So Lemaitre, although a Catholic priest and a very dedicated Catholic priest, did not say this is something that, that, that proves, indicates that the story in Genesis or that what we have in theology is true. Lemaitre is a very, very fascinating person. Then, they all go to California for meetings at Caltech. Einstein shows up. Einstein meets Hubble. Hubble meets Einstein. Einstein's English is very poor. Hubble has no German. They sort of smile, shake hands. And then Einstein visits a Caltech thermodynamics specialist, Richard C. Tolman. Tolman knew German and English very well. Tolman convinced Einstein of the validity of Hubble's results. And Einstein, who'd sort of had his doubts about a non-static universe, was converted. And so in 1931, we have Einstein at the center here in the offices of the Mount Wilson Observatory with Hugh Mason, Hubble, Albert Michelson, William Campbell, president of the University of California, Walter Adams, the head of the Mount Wilson Observatory. Einstein has just finished giving a lecture in which he's talked about relativistic cosmology and the notion of an expanding universe. So now Einstein comes on board and it now looks as if everything is okay. And I don't know what went wrong here, but something did. Because what then happens is the long dark night of cosmology, when it is not a subject in which lots of people work. It's a subject which is not taught. It's a subject which is not written about very much. It's a subject in which the number of citations just plummets, falls to the floor. Why is this? A German scholar, Otto Heckmann, publishes an article in 1932 in which he says, you know, look, you don't have the Lemaitre Friedman universe alone. There are at least a dozen equally valid solutions to the Einstein equations. Then the next year, a British scholar, Arthur Milne, produces his own cosmology for which you don't need general relativity. And now you have 1933, 34, 35, you not only have one decent solution, you have a dozen. How are you going to decide? How are you going to understand if you're a man like Hubble, who really hadn't had the training in mathematics? It was very, very hard, and many, many people threw up their hands. Hubble had his own doubts. 
Not many people had the instrumentation to work on this. And the three tests that I told you about earlier, the effects were so minute. Is there, is there a test that you can use that you're going to work on this? And the answer was in the early 30s, no. So people said, you know, I think I'll have a V8. Heber Curtis of the University of Michigan had taken part in a couple of expeditions to look for the deflection of light at a solar eclipse. He made calculations from the photographic plates, found that the results didn't seem to justify the predictions of Einstein. Curtis, in 1938, taught a very famous course on lessons on cosmology. And he said, look, yeah, Einstein predicted what appears to be the right number for the change in the orbit of Mercury. But other people since then have made other calculations, and they find that the effect is supposed to be different. Second, Eddington's results from 1918, they are divinely inspired. And in fact, there is some work that shows that there's a little bit of fiddling with the statistics. Third, trying to find a redshift in the solar spectrum. The sun is bubbling around all the time. It's very hard to distinguish one effect from another. Too many solutions, unnecessary geometry. There's the problem of the age of the Earth being older than the age of the universe. Eddington, the great, um, uh, the great popularizer of, of, of relativity. Curtis was unhappy about him. Would you let me tell you a little Eddington story? Eddington, later on in his life, devised what was called a fundamental theory based on the notion that all the numerical constants found in physics are ultimately related. It turned out that their values didn't quite work out okay, but the fundamental theory, he spent the rest of his life on it. Nowadays, we would say that it was sort of numerology. But he would lecture on it. Two great physicists, Sam Goudsmit of Brookhaven, Hank Kramers, these are two men who might, maybe should have won the Nobel Prize for their work on, on atomic spectra. They heard a talk, and as they were leaving, Goudsmit turns to Kramers and says, Hank, do all physicists go crazy in their old age? Kramers says, only the great ones. People like you, Sam, only get more and more stupid. <laughs> Scoutsmith's story. Scoutsmith's story. And if you look at the popularizations, Eddington's book, The Expanding Universe, is the first half is very easy to read. The last half is dedicated to the fundamental theory. And it's one of those books that if you see it in a used bookstore, you know, it's like Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. The first 20 pages will really, you can see that somebody's read it. And then the last 80 pages, no, they, they sort of, they realize they had cable. <laughs> Anybody know who either of these two men? Any amateurs here recognize either of these two men? On the left is Albert Ingalls the editor of three volumes of amateur telescope making, editor of the Scientific American. On the right is Russell Porter, who was the founder of amateur telescope making in the United States. 
Ingalls from 1920 to 1954 did book reviews on astronomy for the Scientific American, hundreds of them, and recommended books to amateurs in the different editions of amateur telescope making. Not one of them is about cosmology, not one. Harvard Books on Astronomy, among the best-selling popularizing books in astronomy in the 1940s, Harlow Shapley wrote a book on galaxies. He mentions the Hubble diagram. There is no discussion of cosmology. The only discussion of cosmology is there is a picture of a Princeton cosmologist, H.P. Robertson, and that's that. Robert Baker wrote, is probably the best-selling author on astronomy from 1930 to 1965. His one semester and two semester textbooks can be found in any library in the United States, and I suspect that the libraries here may have multiple copies of them. 500 pages, one page on cosmology, and one page on tired light. He wrote a number of popular, some of you may have know that book up there, which was certainly for some years the best-selling little book in the 90s. Yes, okay. And you may know this wonderful illustration. I dreamed that someday I would live someplace where I could go out in the summer and see this. Ha! I'm still waiting in Ann Arbor. I can actually, but I have to go into a planetarium. So you see that these things were, were not mentioned. Then there were things that happened that, that people didn't realize what they were. This is the star Zeta Ophiuchi, and here is a, uh, a densitometer trace of the spectrum done by Andrew, uh, Andrew McKellar at, at Dominion Astrophysical Observatory. Uh, I gave the, a smaller version of this talk at the American Astronomical Society meeting a few days ago, and, 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 and my medieval training came in. I, I kept referring to it as the Dominican Astrophysical Observatory, um, and uh, I'm sure I'll hear about that. And, and what McKellar discovered was he, this is a cyanogen line, and it's where it's supposed to be, but there's another line uh, of, of excited cyanogen, and the result of that, that results from the fact that the, the, the temperature of this space is a couple of degrees above zero. He had found the cosmic microwave background radiation. But of course, it's like Galileo having discovered Neptune in 1611, you know, sometimes these things happen before, you, before you're ready for it. That was just a little foretaste of things to come. The war didn't help things. Here are Tolman and Hubble looking at the model of the 200-inch telescope, an amounting that they chose not to use in the end. But that put back the study of these things for 10 years. J. Robert Oppenheimer, seen here at Ground Zero, at the first atom bomb test. His last publication, published the day World War II broke out, is on what we now know to be black holes, relativistic astrophysics, relativistic cosmology. He never returned to it, another loss. On the other hand, radio astronomy, which is important in cosmology, does come out of the Second World War, out of radar research. Here is a meeting an international meeting of radio astronomers in Australia in 1951, not one of them had ever taken a course in astronomy. 
Not one. You will notice the lone woman, Ruby Payne Scott, who was about to lose her job because A, she became pregnant, B, she wore shorts. In 1946, a result of the war was that people had some better ideas about certain aspects of nuclear physics. And some of them, this is Robert Herrmann, George Gamow, and Ralph Alpher, came up with, again, a theory very much like the one that we know, a hot big bang with a remnant radiation of a few degrees Kelvin. And here is Gamow, the genie coming out of a bottle of Elem, which was their idea of what the basic building block of the universe actually was. Other people who come out of the war, these three men devised the steady state continuous creation theory of the universe, the notion that the universe has always been the same in time. Universe expands, but every now and then a hydrogen atom appears from sort of out of nowhere just to keep the general density of the universe the same. Maybe the noise was the creation of a hydrogen atom here this evening. Tom Gold was one of my professors at Cornell, so. Ah, yes. Now, the interesting thing is that, again, something of the war, Thomas Gold and Hermann Bondi were both refugees from Austria. They met and began to work. They met at an internment camp in England in 1939. It's interesting. I don't know anything about this, but the internment camp where they were placed in was the same one my father was placed in. But I don't think that they ever met my father except maybe over ladling out a dish of potatoes. Um, those internment camps were very interesting. It took the Brits five months to realize that interning all the Germans meant they were interning the Nazis and the Jews together, and somehow they didn't get along as well as as, as, as they thought. But again, one effect of the war is bringing people together and doing things like that. Also, popular popularization of science was a big deal then. Fred Hoyle made the steady state theory very popular by broadcasting about it on the BBC and by publishing popular books. Gamow's book and Hoyle's book, sort of in the, in, in the newsstand in my hometown, I remember when you could buy Gamow and Hoyle for the price of a package of bubblegum. What did I buy? I bought a book on UFOs. And that is why I became such a good medieval historian. In the 1950s, things slowly begin to change. Hubble's successor was Alan Sandage, up here towards the top, who believed that the redshifts did represent real velocities. Walter Bade, over here, who had the run of the Mount Wilson 100-inch telescope during the war because he neglected to take out American citizenship. And they decided, what do we do with this German? Put him in prison. And the people at Mount Wilson said, no, you really want to imprison him? Make him sit on Mount Wilson for, for the duration. And so he said, it's OK. But he had the run of the 100-inch telescope. And Los Angeles was having blackout conditions. So he had the most superb astronomical things you could want at your disposal. Terrible punishment. 
And what Bada did was Bada changed our measuring scale for the universe and brought the age of the Earth well within the age of the universe. Now, there's something very interesting here I'd just like to point out to you. Notice that there's Bada here, and then here is Jason Nassau of Case Western Reserve. They looked very much alike, made a deal that they would always wear the same clothes when they went to conventions, and would sometimes stand in ways so that one person would think that, is that Bada or is that Nassau? They did that for many, many, many years. All of this changes in 1963. The rebirth occurs in 63, partly a result of another impact of World War II, which is big science. The 200-inch telescope is completed. Work on radar turns into work on radio astronomy, and you have things like this, the big parks, radio telescope in Australia. And people begin to come together, and if they see something in the radio sky, but they can't locate it closely, they'll ask somebody at Mount Palomar to take a photograph of it and take a spectrum and see what it is. And one of them was a very peculiar radio star, which we now know as a quasar, 3C273, undistinguished star. Nothing particularly peculiar about it, but producing enormous amounts of emission in the radio spectrum. You take a better photograph of it in a 200-inch telescope, just like a star, except for this little jet that comes off of it. Something very peculiar about this. It's small, but it's extremely active. This is not the little house any longer. This is something more active, more violent. And Martin Schmidt ultimately got a good spectrum of it and was able to show that here you have this object which is bright in terms of the 200-inch telescope. It has this funny jet. It's very small. And when you look at its spectrum, have a sense of just how great its velocity is, it is at a cosmological distance but it appears to be so tiny. What can be producing this much energy? This is the rebirth. This is when people say, now we really have to look at general relativity again. Now we can finally do cosmology with actual evidence. And the result was in that same year, 1963, the first Texas Symposium on Relativistic Astrophysics, called in part to try to explain these peculiar objects. We then will have, of course, the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation two years later, pulsars two years later, very different universe. And you know, you can see some of the culture heroes. Let's see, I can't see it very well. Fred Hoyle out here on the right is J. Robert Oppenheimer, returning to something that he had left a generation before. But this was now, this was now that cosmology became a doable, in a sense an experimental, a new science. The long night was over. Kapteyn had had this wonderful little universe. 
the universe after 1963 is this remarkable universe of clusters of galaxies with gravitational lensing, all kinds of things like this, a remarkably active universe, which has left us, well, this is the reason that my courses end up not being so very popular. When on the last day I have to tell them, well, you know, we now have dark matter, and we now have dark energy, and this is all the result of the study of relativistic astrophysics, but I have to tell you that I'm going to be grading you on all that I've been able to show you in 14 weeks, which is only 4% of the universe. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your patience, and I'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you very much, Rudy. We have time for questions, so if anyone would like to ask a question, uh, we'll start here and then you. You raised the question about does light have uh, ever loses energy? Can you answer the question? Uh, someone once asked Vera Rubin about dark matter. Uh, I heard her at a lecture and someone asked, Vera, what do you think dark matter is? And she said, I don't know, this is a quote, I don't know what the hell it is. Um, uh, I think it is generally understood that there is no evidence that shows that light loses its energy through its propagation through vast amounts of space and over large amounts of time. Um, and I think there have been people who've done things that sort of say they can't find a theory that would justify speaking of such an effect. And it doesn't appear that, 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 that it, it, it involves introducing some new principles to physics on an ad hoc basis, which people on the whole don't like to do. That's the best answer I can give you. Um, you mentioned earlier in the lecture something about non-Euclidean geometries, of, and two of which I'm, I know is Riemannian and Lobachevskian. And um, how did those um, alternative ge geometric theories or concepts contribute to the history of cosmology both a century ago and in the present day? Well, I, I think the, I can't speak with any authority about how these things are viewed at the present day, except that, that um, there's a sense in which um, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to, to uh, I'm not going to, to get into that tar pit right here because it involves a lot of things. Um, I was talking the other day with one of my colleagues who was a cosmologist, and I mentioned string theory, and he looked at me in horror. Um, uh, but here was the point, is that Einstein found that as he was working on the equations to understand the gravitational field 
involving objects that are accelerated, which means in a gravitational field, right? You jump off the top of a building, you, you, you go down faster. Um, and uh, he found that the only way that he was able to model the mathematics was by using non-Euclidean geometries. He had not gone to those lectures at the Swiss Federal Polytechnic Institute, but his friend Marcel Grossman had and had taken wonderful notes. So he sat down with Grossman and they worked over uh, especially Riemannian geometry. And, and so, and that is an essential part of the 1915 and 1917 uh, articles. The astronomers found it very difficult to understand this, to accept this in their New Yorker cartoons in the 1920s about people standing in front of hotels on Park Avenue, scratching their heads, and, and the caption is, Society came to a, high society came to a halt as people considered the curvature of space-time on Madison Avenue. Um, uh, so it is, it is an essential part right from the start in 19, not, not, not 1915. And John Archibald Wheeler of Princeton put it very well. He has a wonderful book on the subject. Matter tells space how to curve. Curved space tells matter how to behave. But right from the start, this was, this was uh, an essential point. And I assume, it, I, I assume it's, it's a wonderful question. Thank you very much. And I should also note that our speaker on January 28th is a string theorist. And we'll be talking about that. Other questions? All right. If not, then. Let's thank Professor Lidner one more time. Again. Thank you very much. And I will remind you our next, next, our next lecture is next Monday. Monday the 11th, if you're not a college football fan that wants to watch the national championship game, we'll have Professor, excuse me, Dr. Theodora Carolidi talk about life on other planets. <laughs>